Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And right now, I'm living and teaching in Hanoi, Vietnam for Vinh University. Today, please welcome our guest, Rachel Ryder, author of Who You Are is How You Lead. Rachel, welcome. Hi, Mark. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. So great to have you here. Uh, So, Rachel, let's start off with you telling us about your professional background. Absolutely. I grew up in HR. I grew up in the world of fintech. And while I was there, I worked with leaders of all shapes and sizes um, and usually at the tops of organizations. And I was doing all roles. I was a generalist. I helped them hire, fire, develop. And it was a turning point in my career because I was asked to lead a global reduction in force. And um, I was really well respected and, you know, great executor. And it was a reduction in force that I really didn't agree with. I couldn't get behind. And of course, I did a good job and I I followed through well, but it really spoke to me in terms of my need for my heart to be aligned with my work. And so as a result of that, I moved directly into executive coaching um, so that I didn't have to fire, but could actually help develop people. And from there, I cultivated a background that really complements the corporate world of executive coaching. I am trained in somatic experiencing, which is a um, a tool or training that is about the nervous system and how to self-regulate the nervous system so that your emotions don't hijack your experience. I also am trained in polarity and other energetic modalities that allow you to self-manage and orient to your interpersonal relationships because the premise of my work is that um, it's not just what you get done, but it's how you do it with the people that you work with. Uh, What's the best part of coaching uh, people and what's the most challenging part? I find the best part of coaching is watching people blossom and unfold. Um, actually, I was moved to tears two days ago with a client of mine. He's a CEO of a very large organization, and he was having panic attacks. And he was struggling to breathe between meetings and had to sometimes excuse himself from meetings. And we last session had just noticed how he hadn't had a panic attack in three months. And to know that I was his partner and helping that shift was so powerful and so moving. And we had such a tender moment between us to acknowledge what unfolded so beautifully because of the work we've done together. And I would say that is the best part of coaching. That would That's what fuels me in my work. And I think makes me a better coach because that's what I want more of for my clients. Um, the hardest part, I think when... I see something in the client that they don't see in themselves and that they may not want to go deeper to access within themselves. And that's hard because I want to help them along. And sometimes folks are like, you know what, this is good enough for me. You know, I fixed the superficial problem. I don't want to fix the underlying problem. Thank you very much. And I think that's the sticking point for me in coaching is how do you really meet someone where they are, even when you think they could do exactly whatever they want, not just today's want. Well, that's like teaching. You want to maximize their potential and they don't want to do it as much as you want to do it. And you see all this potential in them <laughs> and you tell them, because uh, I have that, they'll give me a paper and I'll say, you know, I know you can do better. Try it again. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I just want the grade you, whatever you're going to give me. Right. I just don't <laughs> want to do it again. Like, oh, damn. Well. Now you got the grade you got. Now you're going to not be happy at the end of the day, for sure. Why did you write this book? 
I do a lot of exclusive work. We uh, MetaWorks is a very high end, low volume, high quality, high touch shop. We work with only leaders who run companies and their leadership bench beneath them. And so a lot of what we do happens behind closed doors. And it felt like there was a clear cadence to the magic. You know, so much of the work I do, clients um, will say, if I'm working with one of their people or my coach works with one of the people, they're like, I don't know what you did. It was magic, but they're, they're different. And even CEO colleagues will say that to each other. And I felt like, you know what, this actually isn't magic. This is something that's repeatable, that's accessible. And I wanted to make it accessible to those who didn't have access to the closed doors or who were interested in finding out before they walked through the closed door. So um, what is the, and I need you to explain this, uh, explain the meta work method. What is that? So that's exactly what I was talking about when I said there is a cadence to the magic. So often people feel like, oh, this just happens. I just change. I just stop having panic attacks. And that's not true, actually. There is a method to our work. And so the MetaWorks method is actually an outline of what that looks like. And that it's in the book, it it sounds like it's linear. I would actually say it's cyclical. Sometimes the steps you revisit and you deepen in a different way, but that there is a way to access a better part of yourself, a better, more powerful leader. And the MetaWorks method really walks you through a step process that helps you do so. And that we, the work we do with our clients. Is this something you created this, um, this process? Yes, yes. And it is a reflection of the work I've done for the past 10 years coaching executives, as well as my own training. I was trained at Columbia University as an executive coach. I mentioned that I was trained in somatic experiencing, which is a three year intensive training around trauma and the nervous system. Also, I have been a Zen Buddhist practitioner for since I was 13. And so some of the pieces of the MetaWorks method is directly connected to how you engage your mind um, and meditation, meditation tenants. And so the MetaWorks method has this beautiful soup of all of my experience woven in, um, in terms of my own training and my client experience. Just out of curiosity, before I start talking about more in the book, um, how long did it take you to establish your consulting practice and how hard was it to get people to buy into this methodology? So I feel like I, I had a blessed beginning for my consultancy. I actually ran it while I was in-house at tech companies with the tech company blessing. So I would act as a co executive coach to other company leaders while running internal executive coaching programs for companies. And so what was beautiful about that for me is A, it was everybody won because there was cross fertilization about what different companies were doing in leadership. But B, it also gave me space to take risks and be my true self as a coach without worrying about where is the money going to come from? And, you know, do I have to play it safe? Because I really was getting, I was embedded in a company and also running my own company. And so I really, for me, that felt like the freedom to do what I wanted without worrying about where the money was going to come from and if a client would like me or not. And so I ran my own consultancy pro, um, business while being in-house for about three to five years, I think. Um, before, no, it was three years because I've been so I've been fully dedicated to this company for almost 10. So um, so then when I stepped into my own company fully, I had clients, even though the client that I was in-house with had a six-figure contract with me the first year I fully dedicated to myself. So it was a really a beautiful transition. I feel very grateful because being an entrepreneur is not easy. And what I would say about, you asked me a second question. Um, what was your- Yeah, I, I, I was uh, asking you, how long did it take for uh, your clients to embrace this? But you were saying that because you were already internal, you already had buy-in uh, from but, your company. Yes, but I will say the evolution of the MetaWorks method was 
something that took people time to buy into because in the beginning, I hadn't woven in somatic experiencing and energetic work and meditation. And so my clients initially, we were doing more superficial work. And so I feel lucky that because they knew me and knew my work, they were interested and open to try to start doing some of the deeper pieces of the MetaWorks method. And so I would say overall, it was seamless, um, but did take some transition. What's the profile, the type of leader that embraces this kind of uh, method that you use? Yeah, that's funny that you asked that question. I was just speaking with my coach about it, the woman who works on our team. Um, there's obviously the superficial. They, uh, a person who comes to MetaWorks is running a large organization, whether they're inside a bigger organization or it's their own. They have many people coming to them. They're in a position where the butt stops with them. But that's the superficial profile. The deeper profile is the client is sick of using a Band-Aid. They know what it looks like to have a good one-on-one. -on -one. They understand the tenets of how you have a difficult conversation. They've read those books. They've been around the block. They've been in Leadership 101. The reason they come to us is it's still not working for them. They understand cognitively this is what you should be doing, and yet they can't make it sticky. It's not being applied effectively, or they keep trying those tenants and some reason it's still going poorly. The clients who come to us are saying, I'm sick of the Band-Aid. I want to get to the heart of why this is an issue for me. And usually the issues are high stakes. And usually the issues are a struggle with their relationship to the company in some way. They can't get excited about their work anymore. That they keep hiring the wrong people or they're not communicating effectively with their people. These are big organizational issues that they want to come to us to work out. Or like I said, the CEO, that client who had shifted so profoundly, he actually came to me because he didn't want to have panic attacks anymore, but he didn't want to go to a therapist. I don't do therapy, obviously, um, but he didn't want to go to a therapist because it was directly related to his company. He had panic attacks only around work. And Interesting. so, yeah, isn't that fascinating? I, I mean, and especially for somebody who rose up in the company who's been in leadership roles, there's a famous basketball player named Bill Russell uh, uh, who won the most championships in the NBA. And he would throw up before every single game. Now, how's that even like possible <laughs> oh my God. that he would be so riled up that he would throw up before every single game and he's considered one of the like 10 greatest players ever. Yes. And so what I love about that example, and this is the premise of the work we do, is that so clearly a nervous system issue because he knows cognitively it's okay. He knows cognitively that he knows how to do this. He's been doing it. And so what's great. One of the, exactly. And really well. And that's one of the, one of my favorite um, examples of how to help a leader know that there is something stuck in the nervous system when the cognitive and the body are doing different things, then something is misaligned here. It's like the fight or flight that's coming on board because the CEO that I was working with, he knew it was all okay. They're, yes, the company is very high stakes. They're looking at, you know, M&A, they're doing, you know, there's a board to report to, but at the end of the day, he knows the company's doing well. And then he even said, and if the company died tomorrow, I know I'll be okay. Financially, we'll be okay. So the fact that he knew cognitively, but that he couldn't breathe and could well, like sometimes excuse himself from a meeting, that tells you, okay, we're in nervous system territory here and we have to understand what's stuck here that's misaligned here. And I bet you that's that basketball player too. If the basketball player is listening, he should come have a chat with me. Unfortunately, he died a couple of years ago. Oh, no. I'm sorry um, but if we that. could bring him back for sure. <laughs> so let's talk about what's your definition of leadership? Hmm. Okay. I have been asked this question many times, you know, because I come on podcasts a lot. And, um, I think the more and more I answer this question, the 
more I really believe it's emanating your own light. I really think that when you stand in your true self, in your own integrity, in your own clarity of who you are and what you want, you always will honor the other person in the room. You will always lead by example. You will always speak to hearts and minds. And so I think at the end of the day, leadership is about emanating your own light. Yeah, I, I, I believe that as well. What leaders stand out in your mind, past or present, and why? Like There must be examples uh, that you've seen or, and that you admire. Who would they yeah. be? I, you know, two that I really love and respect is the Dalai Lama and Michelle Obama. And I think both of them do what I just talked about. I think they both stand in their own light. They are their true selves and they care about the connection they have with others. And they care about offering their lives in service of others while standing in their true selves and being very clear on who they are. Uh, you wrote that it's a very good sign when leaders hit the wall and are ready to pivot. What do you mean by that? And why is that good? <laughs> I, I have to tell you, it is my favorite moment when a client says to me, I don't know if anything, if, if anything else is possible here, something's got to give, or I'm really stuck. Because what that says to me is they're ready to change. It's very difficult to work with something that you're not yet ready to change because it won't change. That's the, that's the person who wants a Band-Aid versus the person who wants to uproot the issue. When someone looks at me and says, I don't know what else to do. I've hit a wall. I am here to celebrate them and say, awesome, you're ready. You are ready to shift this behavior that has been so unhelpful to you, even though it's been trying to protect you. And, and, and that's uh, like anybody else, if they have a problem, right? That the fact that they now can admit to it, that's the only way they can solve it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we have a question from the audience. Uh, does Rachel believe that leaders are born as such or can we learn to be effective, good leaders? That's always the question every leadership author gets. Yes. I have that in my list. <laughs> yeah, I, I really believe that it has to do with what you're interested in. I think I told you in my mind, leadership is emanating your own life. So you may not, you know, you may not be my client who has a huge organization. You may be, you know, someone who doesn't even lead people. But if you're emanating your own light, I consider you a leader because you're setting an example. You're touching people's hearts. You're having an impact on their lives. And so in that definition, to me, I think it's within everybody. The question is, if in, in the context of leadership that I'm talking about, about running large organizations, I think that's a decision point for someone. Do you want that? That's the first question. And then the second question is, how much does it matter to you that you're good? And then the third question is, what does good mean to you? I think everyone would say Jeff Bezos has been very successful. I have coached a lot of people who have worked directly with him, a few steps under him. I don't know how many people would say he's a great leader. I know some people would say he's an effective leader. But what it, is he good? I think for him, he is. I think he's been highly successful and effective. But this is where we get into the space of who do you want to be? What kind of leader do you want to be? So I think at the end of the day, if we're talking about a good leader, it, it depends on whose definition of good. So you know, that was my next question to you. What's the characteristics of a great leader? I am going to take that question as though you're asking me. I know Jeff Bezos would disagree with me. <laughs> um, 
for me, you know, and this is the premise of my book. At a certain level in an organization, you are not doing anymore. You're doing high level tasks, but really your people are doing. You are working through your people to get things done. That means that your relationships to those people are your deliverables. That means that trust, communication, clear communication of expectations are what matters about you being a good leader at the top of an organization. And none of that can happen without a strong relationship. And the premise of who you are is how you lead is you better get clear on the relationship you have with yourself before you can have effective relationships with your people. And so, in my, yeah, what were you going to say? No, go ahead. Finish up what you were going to no, say. No, no, no. I'm curious what you were going to I, I was, I was going to say that, you know, people always talk about, oh, I manage 3,000 people, 5,000 people, whatever that number is. But the reality is you're only managing maybe five people. Yes. And it keeps going down the line, right? I mean, because that's there's no way that you're uh, managing 3,000 people and interacting with them and understanding what they're going through on a daily basis and motivating each of them beyond the bigger picture. Exactly. I will say I completely agree with you very strongly about this too, um, because the relationships that you're having are with those five people. And I do believe that in those five people's relationships, you are creating culture. You know, I've seen, you can feel palpably different cultures in different companies. And I do believe that culture, though it isn't controlled by the top of the organization, it's certainly jump, it's jump-started by the top of the organization. I can't even agree more with that. I, I was uh, telling, uh, my boss, a new dean that came to the school, that there's a young lady, uh, she's 28, and she's part of the admin group, but on the marketing side. And mm -hmm. I said, she's probably the most important person in our business school's uh, culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't even, I, I realized it working with her. And so I said, the reason she's most important is that when she's not there, nobody goes out to lunch together. When she's mm -hmm. there, she gets everybody together. She gets everybody together like four times a week for uh, like having uh, tea or snacks or something. So oh. the only time people are actually talking is when she brings them all together. Now she's leaving um, the school mm. and going to do something else. And I said, it's probably a bigger loss than any of us professors leaving because mm. of what I uh, see that she means. Because she was out sick for a week. She had appendicitis, appendix removed. Literally nobody went out to lunch together. Everybody went their own separate ways. Wasn't the dean pulling people together? Wasn't the vice dean? It was her. And I heard from three people in our organization how our culture changed. And I could trace the, the change in the culture to when she joined uh, the university. And there's another person who is staying. But between the two of them, that's uh, where the culture is really driven of us being a, a family unit and not being a family unit. I love that example, you know, and what that tells me is it's like, then if we're talking in this kind of template of high level leadership, then setting intention and tone, when that's identified, then the leadership can say, okay, how do we make that non-dependent on a person? Does yeah. there, is there like always team lunch on Friday? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So that that's like the reinforcement of the intention. And I love that. That's speaking of good leadership. When good leadership is observing, ooh, these are the cultural aspects that we want. How do we support and reinforce that? Again, that that even that lens is a relational piece of how do we connect people? How do we create structures to support that so it isn't dependent on one person? I thought it was interesting. I had lunch with somebody from uh, HR and she said, you know, um, you're, the business college had the worst culture of any of the schools. And two other people told me the same. And then they said, but now you guys got the best culture. I see you all eat together every day. I see you all going out together. You guys go barbecuing at night, like all these uh, team oriented things that you do. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it. I thought, 
I can only trace it to one person in the whole business school that gets everybody together. And she has a wonderful sense of humor. So it's going to be a big loss and, a, and hard to replace. I actually addressed it with the entire uh, team. I said, who's going to step up to replace uh, this particular person in keeping us together? Because it's not going to be the 63-year-old from Philadelphia. <laughs> well, that's where structure and process can come into place. Everybody, you have to rotate who leads the lunch on uh, Fridays or Thursdays. Uh, you're, pro you're probably right. So why do you write when you reach the highest level of power that relationships are currency or yeah. your currency? Yeah. And so I think, you know, we talked about that a little earlier, but this is really how you get stuff done. And I want to be clear, this is not in a manipulative way. This isn't, oh, I need to get someone to do something. So I need to be nice to them. No, this is a much deeper, which is that you want to have deep, strong connections to your team so that things do get done. You know, it's kind of, Mark, to what you were saying about why it was so important to go out to lunch. That's not just so people have high spirits, which I very much support and think is important. It's also so that when something gets hard, someone is cranky, there is already established rapport for someone to come and to you and say, hey, Mark, ugh, this went poorly. I feel badly. Can we talk it through? Because that's how you have a successful organization. When there is proactive communication, when people aren't living from a place of fear and hiding things under the, the carpet, hoping no one finds out, but actually proactively saying, hey, I'm worried about this. I think we misstepped. Because there's such a deep trust that that communication will be rewarded, that someone on the receiving end of that will say, oh no, let's talk this through. How do you think this happened? How can we prevent it from happening again? How can we mitigate it right now? That that is why the relationships at the highest level are so important. It's so that things can be done effectively and, and beautifully and scale. When an employee does something wrong, do you tell them what they did and how to fix it? Or do you ask them why they chose the path they did and would they choose a different path the second time? I mean, what, what do you advise your leaders to do about that? I think it's really important for the employee to not feel set up. So I think the second part of your question, though it sounds like the nicer path, I, I think is a setup because you know, as the leader, what you're disappointed about. I actually talk a lot about this with leaders. I used to run leadership classes. Um, now we only do one-on-one -on -one coaching, but during the leadership classes, I would talk about leader as coach doesn't mean you don't give feedback. You give feedback, you make a statement. I'm disappointed. The expectations that we set here didn't get met, period. Then leader as coach, Tell me what happened. Help me understand why we missed the mark. So that there is room for the employee to respond. Oh, I didn't understand. Or, oh, I overshot or I waited till the last minute. Okay, then there's room for us to troubleshoot, understand how to make it better the next time, make sure it doesn't happen again. But it's still vital for us to be communicating, hey, this isn't working. And so I, I actually take half of each part of that question because I think it's really important that expectations are very clear. No one can meet a successful role unless they know the expectations. So you need to be clear. Expectations haven't been met here. Were you confused about the expectations? Let's talk about that. But then you want to help figure out how to help them meet it. So it's not just a, so you need to do this next time. It's, well, since that didn't happen, how do we help you get there? You write leaders lead and others execute. What happened to lead by example or lead by doing? Mm. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. But I like to use this example. You know, it's funny. Um, I was speaking on a podcast once with a fellow leadership coach, and um, he was saying how he had pulled the leaders in the room about what would they want their leader to be doing with them. And he said the answer was roll up the, their sleeves and do the work with them. And I 
And he said, isn't that so interesting? And he said, because that's not what we communicate leadership leaders should be doing. And I frankly think that they their answer wasn't what they meant. I truly believe that leaders, that the direct report of leaders want leaders to see and know them, to understand the work they're doing. But the person who's leading a team doesn't know how to do each individual's job, doesn't know how. In fact, if they tried, they muddy the waters, they disrupt things, micromanaging becomes an issue that it is rarely effective for the leader to be doing the job of the others, creates bottlenecks, confusion. I think that what that team was saying they wanted was the leader to see and understand the levels of work they're doing and to help remove roadblocks. Because the definition of leadership is to not be doing the job of another, is to actually help the other do their job effectively. And so I think that leading by doing is really unhelpful to everybody. Now, if we're talking about behaviors, that's very different. If we're talking about a leader needs to be effective and show their team that that their team needs to be affected by proactive communication, by having clear expectations, then I would say, yes, that's appropriate. That's an appropriate lead by doing behaviorally. But I, I very much disagree that a leader should be leading by doing the job of someone on their team. It creates confusion and muddies the waters. When you ask leaders the biggest mistake they've made, it's usually, and this is like for me doing a couple hundred interviews, uh, they've made is usually they stuck with someone too long. That's what I hear all the time. What's your biggest mistake? I stuck with someone too long. Does giving someone a longer chance than they might have earned send a positive signal that the leader gives employees every chance to succeed? Or does it show weakness in making bad decisions that could hurt the organization? I actually think the message is I actually orient to the leader, to tell you the truth, when you ask that question. What matters to me is the leader feels like they've done everything they can. And I, you you are not the only one who's seen this. I see this with folks on, I work with, but also folks on my team. I've got my own team. And I will tell you, probably every person I've fired, it was probably took, a, I could have fired them months before. However, I feel so clear that it was the right thing to do, I think I needed those extra months to know. And I feel that way with most leaders who say, I waited too long, that that's probably a good sign. That means they have no regrets. And I think that's really important in decision-making as a leader, that you feel very clear about your decisions. And the clearer you are about those decisions and the less baggage there is around it when it's discussed, I think that the better the team benefits. So I actually think it's less a message to the team and more about the the decision-making of the leader getting clear. Yeah, I agree with that. I I also think it it sends a message to the team that you're allowed to make mistakes. Uh, Because if you fire, because I've heard people say, "Ah, you know what, I read this book, I should fire quicker. But I think that sends a negative message to everybody and that the people, the smartest people end up leaving and going to an organization where they're allowed to make mistakes. And you end up uh, keeping the people who are hesitant to do anything. And then it turns out even worse for you. I think that's so true. And it's funny too. I've also, when leaders finally fire folks that are so clearly needing to go, it's such a gift to the team as well. Like on the flip side of that, that I think the team feels relieved, the leader's taking care of them. No one's surprised usually. It's usually someone who's not carrying their weight or who's toxic to the team. And so I think firing at um, in a delayed way is, is only a benefit um, because you feel clean, the team feels relieved, and, and everyone feels like there can be mistakes made. And so it's I think it's a better space than the alternative. Absolutely. Uh, when does a leader know that they can no longer do the job to the level the company needs to succeed? I think that's, again, and, and this is where actually we do a lot of work 
at Meadowworks um, in coaching is helping someone find their inner compass. You know, leadership at the highest levels is so much about your own judgment. You can read 5,000 best practice leadership books. And I know there's some value in there, but at the end of the day, you're the one deciding how to apply it. And so I think what is most vital when making decisions about who's right for an organization is you're clear on what does this organization need? How are they meeting or not meeting my needs? I mean, frankly, those are the conversations that I have with leaders. Am I making this up? Is this too much? Maybe it was okay that those back and forth is all about listening to the gut and the internal compass. That's aligning the cognitive and the nervous system. Okay, are we on the same page? And so I think that's that's really the skill here is in determining whether someone is ready to go or not is knowing yourself as a leader. What's most important to you? What are you observing on the team? What are you disappointed by in this person? Are you just reacting to a personality with issue with this person? Let's keep let's check ourselves. And so I think at the end of the day, it's all about understanding your internal compass as a leader and what's driving you and the way you're making decisions. Now that your book came out, does do they need any other leadership books? They don't need to read other leadership books, right? Just yours. I'm sure everyone feels that way. Uh, what criteria should a leader have when s- selecting a coach? Like when there, I mean, there's so many people who are doing coaching like yourself. So what's the criteria that you suggest to your own clients? Hey, when you're picking somebody to coach you, here's what you should be thinking about. Yeah. Well, first, I think it's really important that you know what you need coaching on. Because there are so many coaches out there that are doing different things. There's strategy coaches. There's um, organizational coaches. You know, I, and neither one of those am I, and MetaWorks isn't either. We're here for your inner work as a leader. And so it's really important to know what are you, what are you wanting to work on? There's merger and acquisitions coaches, you know, what there's board coaches. What is it that you made that made you reach out and say, I think I need a coach. And even if it's an example, I want you to identify that example and understand what is that example pointing to? I can't get along with my team. I can't get along with my board, or I have no idea what the strategy should be for next year. I don't even know how to implement those goals. That will help you understand which coach to choose. Now, once you go researching coaches for that theme, you got to decide. And that's, again, where I think it really has to do with the gut. You need to trust a coach like you trust a close partner, like your chief of staff or a board member. There needs to be a clear sense of trust there. Now, it doesn't have to happen overnight, but when you're in the room with this person, does it feel right? Do you appreciate what they have to say? Does it track with what you're looking for? You're right throughout the book about the survival mechanism. Can you explain it and how it works? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I'm a coach who does inner work. I'm a coach that you come see when you're saying, I'm ready to stop using a Band-Aid. I keep hiring the wrong people on the team. I keep feeling betrayed by my team or I can't manage them or I'm always saying yes. That's when you hire me. Usually, the thing you hire me to help you with is your survival mechanism. A survival mechanism is a behavior that has served you so well for so long and is now getting in the way. I have a CEO, for example, so let's make this concrete. I have a CEO who he is really good at accommodating everybody else. Yes, I'll do this. I'll jump on a 9 p.m. phone call with you to help you with the deck. I'll make sure that I speak to the bank directly. I'll and and it has really gotten in the way for him. He's feeling burnt out, overwhelmed, has nothing to give. He's then not spending his time on the things that he needs to, which are the larger, big picture, long-term strategic things. And we've been looking at it. And this is one of his survival mechanisms. Him meeting everybody else's needs has been something that has served him so well in his life. It has made him well-liked. It has made him have a very strong and sophisticated network 
professionally and socially. It has made him really successful. And yet it is detrimental to him right now. That's what I mean when I'm talking about a survival mechanism, a behavior that we have done for so much of our life that often serves us, protects us, keeps us alive and successful is now actually getting in our way in a very harmful way. And so when this appears, and by the way, I just want to be very clear, this shows up consistently at the highest levels of an organization. This is what I'm working on with my people, my clients, because they've made it to the top and it's still something's not working. And so I want to be very clear, this is very normal. And what we do in working with the survival mechanism is that we help them not get rid of it because it actually has grains of wisdom and it is what's kept them alive and successful. Not get rid of it, but become in charge of it because usually the survival mechanism is in charge of us. And so the shift is for us to then say, hey, when do I want to accommodate someone's needs, even though it's not necessary for me to, instead of, oh, I have to, because that's the way I'm going to continue to be successful. What do you mean about developing your ideal state? And what is that? So I would say that um, even coaches very different from me would agree that you need a goal to work towards. You need to have a clear thing that you are working towards so you can accomplish it. In my world, internally, when we talk about ideal state, we're talking about, okay, so what would it look like if you weren't run by your over-accommodating survival mechanism? How would you feel? What would that, what space would open up? How would you run your company? The clearer we get on the ideal state, the clearer it is to move towards that goal. And having an ideal state is actually really important. It's like any CEO knows that visioning for the company and what's happening next year and what they want in 10 years is so vital to what they move towards, how it informs decision-making. And that's, that's true too in the work we're doing, in the way you want to show up as a leader, in the way you want to do things differently. How hard is it to develop a new habit, especially the new year started, we're almost done the first month of the new year. And always people talk about developing a new habit. Why do so many people fail at it? Yeah. You know, there are books about habits that I'm sure everybody could read. What I would say in my work is particularly new habits in behaviors are very hard. You know, in in the somatic experiencing, the premise of somatic experiencing is that we have neural pathways. Neural pathways make us able to do things quickly without thinking, like driving, like responding um, in, to a text, writing. Those neural pathways exist in unhelpful behaviors too. And so in order to shift them, we have to create new neural pathways, but we don't have to just create it. We need to run those neural pathways like a river through through land like if you want to make a ravine that river has to run for a very long time to make it deep and that's true with behavior as well and so what i've found often with clients is we'll be working on something and something shifting like my over accommodating ceo oh he created some boundaries he's not taking meetings after 6 p.m something's shifting and starting to feel good he's getting a positive feedback and then something changes. Oh, he went back to his old ways. Oh, this wasn't working. Oh, this isn't worth it. And so what has to happen is this belief, this experience like, oh, just because something came up that disrupted this new habit I'm creating doesn't mean that it's all out the window. In fact, it's just a helpful reflection like, oh, I have been changing. What I just did isn't what I usually do anymore. And help you come back to oh, the new habit has been created here. We just need to do it more. We need to be consistent and persistent. And so there needs to be some faith and some belief and some experience of positive feedback in order for that habit to stick. Uh, how, much of, how much has your connection to Buddhism, which is you know, very dominant here uh, and where I'm at in Vietnam, impacted the way you look at leadership? 
So in the Buddhism that I practiced, I've been a Zen practitioner for since I was 13. So I can't do the math, but over 30 years. Um, (laughs) And the premise of Zen Buddhism, I don't want to be the representative, but what I've taken from it is that our thoughts are not us. And I also am a student of Tibetan Buddhism as well. And what the the way I weave that into my work is when we examine, as I was telling you, you know, sometimes our cognitive and nervous system are misaligned. Well, that could be the opposite way too, where the nervous system knows something to be true, but the brain doesn't believe it yet. I have a client who she's really stuck in this loop of failure. She knows that everything's okay. The company's doing okay. You know, it's just taken a little dip. But her brain is stuck in, we failed, the company's failing because we have fewer, we have lower numbers this year. And so one of the pieces that I'm working with her is, is how true is that belief system? How true are those thoughts running through your head? Now, this is a powerful tool in meditation to be able to separate your thoughts from you and to examine the truth of them, to look at the data when you look around and say, oh, The company is not failing. We have a large company. We still have income just because the numbers are lower. And so the examination of your thoughts is really vital to make sure that you're not getting in your own way. Is uh, work-life balance possible for leaders? And what does that look like? I think it depends on the leader that you want to be. I do believe it's possible, and I do think you need to make a lot of changes, especially as a CEO. You make it to be a CEO because you've done certain things a certain way. You've you've been available at all times of the night. You've gone on vacation and taken a work call or not unplugged at all. That that used to be you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What makes you say that? Um, Because from reading the book. Uh, you talk about how how you've had to make this change uh, and how you operate. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not easy because you are challenging the these old habits and this belief that that's what makes you successful. And so I believe that it absolutely is possible and things need to change. And I also believe that you can be highly successful with that balance, but your mindset also needs to change around how you show up as a leader. Uh, Aside from writing uh, this excellent book, what are some of your other accomplishments based on your freed up schedule? (laughs) You wrote this book and and you talked about that you got freed up. What are some of the other things you were able to accomplish because you managed to make this change? Hmm. Well, in the time that I wrote the book, I also, I, I was six weeks postpartum when I started writing this book from with my second child, I was managing the sale of our house and the construction of, um, some construction projects of stepping into our new house. So I managed to move. I made sure my two children are now settled in, um, and we're growing the company. We've pivoted a little bit from when I wrote this book and leaning really into the inner work, um, which the book kind of jump started. This is something, not something we were talking explicitly about before. And now we are. And so, um, yeah, it feels like the world is opening up in a new way for MetaWorks. Uh, what do leaders uh, get wrong when they hear a third party feedback that isn't what they expected? And they're shocked because no one ever mentioned it before. And I, I've had clients because I do 360s with clients. And a lot of times they're like, what? I had no idea. Mm. What do you see their reaction as? I, I see that their reaction is disappointed in themselves. Mm. That the people weren't more honest. I had someone who ran uh, a large HR organization with consultants. And the people told me that they always check his temperature when he comes in to see what his mood is before mm-hmm. they tell him something. And if mm-hmm. he's not, they don't think he's in a good mood, then they uh, then they withhold the information. And when I told him, he was like, 
dumbfounded. He was like, I, I can't believe it. I, I don't see myself like that. And so he said, you know, I want to hear exactly what they have to say. And I said, I can't tell you who said what, but I can ask them if they'd be open to talking to you about it. But that's the feedback I'm getting. And some of them stepped up and did tell him and he changed his uh, behavior. I don't know if it lasted for the long term, but for the time I was working with him, he had changed his behavior. It's so funny. You know, I used to do a lot of 360s too. We also, I ran live 360s where the feedback would be a collective group giving the leader feedback in the room. It was really intense. And I found a couple of things. There can be a lot of shame around what you just talked about, information that you've never heard before and you're not familiar with. Like that shock also comes with shame. And I have found this what you just described I, is so cool to hear because I saw it pretty consistently where the leader would be like, well, can you give me an example? What do you mean? And sometimes that's impossible because it's anonymous. And what I think is happening in that moment is there's still a disbelief and a challenge. Like, I don't think that's really true or the example you're going to give me, I, you know, there's a qualifier or I just, I can't take this in yet. And so one thing I've coached leaders on when that happens is to check inside internally. How true does it feel to you? If we're going to be really honest here, zero to hundred percent, how much would you agree with that statement? Often leaders will say, oh, okay, 60, 70%. And they'll be like, okay. So what do you want to do about it? If that feels true, whether or not this person is using the right example or not, if that feels true to you, what do you want to do about it? And there have been a couple of moments where someone's been like, you know, that feels really off base or like, I, I just don't know if I care. And it's like, okay, then that's not what you're going to work on because at the end of the day, feedback's a gift and you get to receive it or give it back. <laughs> and so I think, you know, that's, that's the way you got to work. Do men and women hear criticism differently? Um, I don't think I could speak fairly to a question like that. I think I could tell you about the individual clients that I have and um, personalities, but I don't think it's about gender. Okay, well, that, that's the answer then, right? Um, how often should a leader get 360 feedback from subordinates? It's funny that you say this because I'm actually curious your experience because you've done 360s too. I found consistently that when I do 360s, the leader's mostly not surprised. They're like, yeah, I kind of knew that. I knew that about myself or you know, I've gotten that feedback before. And I actually stopped doing 360s because a lot oftentimes they just felt anticlimactic. And so a P, the, the premise of my work is that you really need to be attuned to your people and attuned to yourself to pick up the signals in the room and to show up that way. So you're speaking to someone who does fewer 360s these days because I'm helping them pay attention to what's going on within them in the room. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Um, I basically found that I was called to do it when things were not working out well in their organization. And they wanted to find out why isn't it? is it my leadership? What what exactly is going wrong here? Yeah. I never got to do it on a on a yearly basis mm. uh, with anyone. It was only when there was a fire in the house, mm -hmm. and they said, "Damn, I need to put this out. I need to know how am I perceived? What am I doing wrong uh, as a leader here that we're in this situation that we are right now?" Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Some of them didn't want to hear anything about that. They were like, you know, I want you to interview these people and find out which one of them I need to get rid of. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> then it's then you really do need to look in the mirror if that's your thing. Uh, yeah, right. If that's the purpose, that's not. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's on you. Uh, what have you found is the best way to manage your time? Because you've really worked on this. Hmm. At, at work in general? What yeah. Do you mean? I mean, Warren Buffett says um, you have to be have the ability to say no. You need to say no way more than you ever say yes. Yeah, I agree with that. And first, you need to be clear on what that no is for. 
So I think the first step in time management is knowing what matters to you. You know, this is kind of like what I was talking about, the CEO who over accommodates. First, we had to get clear about where should he be spending his time so that he could start saying no to the things that don't don't matter, don't fall on that list. And that includes his home life. That includes his children. That includes his partner. And so I think the clearer you are on what you want to the back to the idea of the ideal state, the better you can do that. And I would agree. I think no plays a big role in that. Uh, when working with business partners, and and I, hopefully you have you have worked with uh, people who are in uh, partnerships. Uh, do you work with both of them, or how do you you know work with the partners? Do you have each one see their own coach? Do you coach them together, and how do you get them to see each other's viewpoint? Because I've worked with a lot of partnerships that ended up um, being brought in because they're at loggerheads. They just are once they were close and they, they, and everything worked smoothly. And now they just can't even agree if it's sunny outside. Yeah. I think this might be controversial, um, but it feels important in the work I do. I meet with them together and one-on-one separately, but there has to be a level of trust in the triad that that's okay, the one-on-one. And that whatever we speak about one-on-one it's okay to be referenced in the group as long as there's permission. So it doesn't feel like we're talking outside of the lines. I would say the most powerful work happens in the group together when the two are in the room. And I think that's where the most difficult conversations happen and the most healing happens. I think it's some of my favorite work actually. It's very difficult. It's very emotionally intense, um, but it's also beautiful. When uh, taking over for a popular founder of a company, how do you advise clients to carry themselves and interact with the employees? Well, first, I think it's really important to know who you want to be as a leader and respect that you're stepping in to the the organization with a well-established culture and respect for the leader, even if that leader wasn't liked. And so I always recommend starting with asking questions, listening, talking about who you see yourself as, as a leader, and really feeling the pulse of the organization and thinking about the organization as a being and how you want to have a relationship with it, as well as the individuals themselves. Uh, somebody's asking before we forget this, is, is your book available on audio? Not yet, unfortunately, but will be soon. But you're welcome um, to get in on Amazon in the meantime. Um, what is the process and or criteria you use to determine whether someone is worth meeting with? Because I'm sure you get lots of, I do, I get emails every day about meeting with people. And I've got to like screen out uh, more than 95% of them. So how yeah. do you determine, uh, and I reply to everybody, I just tell them, you know, flat out. Uh, I'm, I'm not able to, I just don't have the bandwidth. How do you determine who you should meet with and, and who you have to just say, sorry, I can't do it? Are you talking about potential clients or colleagues or? I, I Maybe not, uh, I guess maybe potential clients or people who just want, your, want to uh, pick your brain about things. Hmm. I always send them to resources. We have a robust blog. We post, I post on LinkedIn and Instagram and Instagram, there are informative videos, if you're interested, at meta, M-E-T-T-A dot works Um, on Instagram, you can find me on LinkedIn and the book. And so when someone inquires about, you know, wanting to get a sense or insight on something, I say, you know, I'm so glad that we're on your radar. Um, Check out all these resources. Um, I think that's a great place to start. Here's my last question for you. Uh, how do you deal with stress and what's your recommendation for your clients? I think stress is a very large umbrella to many different things. And so I think first, it's really important to understand what stress means to you. Is it you're not sleeping at night? Is it you feel chronically overwhelmed? Is it you're having panic attacks? And I think from there, then you can get a little more specific on how to attend to yourself. 
But I would say usually whatever the the point of stress is, a moment of quiet to yourself makes a big difference. And that quiet can be a walk. It can be a meditation. It could be reading a book. It could be standing by the window having a cup of coffee. But I would say start there. Rachel, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. I uh, loved your book, found mm -hmm. it to be very insightful, and no doubt um, it's good to hear that people want to get copies of the of your book. So wish you the best with this. I expect you to be writing more than just this one book. Yes, thank you, Mark. It was such a pleasure to be here. Everyone have a great rest of your weekend. We'll look forward to seeing you all next Friday. Bye, everyone. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.